This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I am Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Emphasis on that forward slash chat. Okay, Rav, it's time for you to tell us all about your chat room. Well, the chat room is always a wonderful place to hang out, especially if you're in one of those areas with those big storms. Uh, do come in, come say hello. The conversation is absolutely fabulous. And you'll get to experience some of that conversation on the air as well today. I'm most excited about it. You know, indeed. Uh, indeed you will. We'll learn more about that. All right. Every week we feature a spotlight segment. And in this week's spotlight, our attention turns to relationships. I mean, after all, this week we will honor personal relationships with Valentine's Day. And all you guys out there, remember, do something special for those ladies. Valentine's Day is an annual event where we celebrate romance, intimacy, and love. Historically speaking, a popular hagiographical account of its founder, St. Valentine of Rome, states that he was imprisoned for performing weddings for soldiers who were forbidden to marry and for ministering to Christians, who were persecuted under the Roman Empire. According to legend, during his imprisonment, he healed the daughter of his jailer, Asterius. An an embellishment, an embezzlement, get that, an embellishment to this story states that before his execution, he wrote her a letter signed, your valentine as a farewell and now i may sign my letter to you princess as your valentine but not as a farewell <laughs> we are social avenues animals I, I, my tongue doesn't want to work today social avenues you've we got are, some complicated <clears throat> words today they're challenging me <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think animal is that challenging. (laughs) We are social animals, and the most important relationship in our adult lives is typically with a significant other. Love makes the world go round, or so it is said. If this is so, then, you know, a fundamental question should be, why is the divorce rate so high? Divorce rates across the globe have been rising rapidly, and... You know, conjecture says it's owing to certain problems like incompatibility between couples, infidelity issues, lack of trust and understanding, and financial pressures. According to Enrichment Journal, the divorce rate in America for the first marriage is now 41%. Over 4 in 10 marriages fail. The divorce rate for a second marriage is 60%. 6 in 10 fail. And the divorce rate for a third marriage is 73%. What is it, then, that it takes for a long-lasting, loving relationship? In a word, 
Well, that's the point. There isn't one. No one word. It's easy for some to say that it's love, but two people can love one another and be unable to resolve other conflicts and find their relationship ending as a result. Some say it's a matter of tenacity, sticking with it through thick and thin. That may sometimes be true, but this attitude can also leave the abused in a relationship that facilitates an abuser with no turnaround in sight. I've heard it argued that what makes for a good relationship is a good sex life or a strong friendship and so forth. The bottom line, it probably takes all of this, not just one item, it takes all of this and more. It especially calls for understanding one another and each other's needs. A recent study that I posted on my Facebook page carried out some truly innovative research. The results of this study found that watching and discussing movies about relationships lowered the divorce rate by 50%. Subjects in the study viewed and discussed five attribute movies. Lead researcher Ronald Rogue believes that the self-help use of this technique could open up new possibilities for relationships. The study involved 174 couples. Quoting from the Science News, Since people watch movies all the time, what exactly makes this intervention so magical? I think it's the couples reinvesting in their relationship and taking a cold, hard look at their own behavior that makes the difference, explained Rogue. The sad truth is that when life knocks you down, you come home and the people you are most likely to lash out at in frustration are the ones you love the most. For these couples to stop and look and say, You know, I have yelled at you like that before. I have called you names before, and that's not nice. That's not what I want to do to the person I love most. Just that insight alone is likely a significant contributor to the value of the intervention. For couples interested in trying the film discussions for themselves, Rogue's Lab website, www.couples-research.com, offers interactive tools to help with the process, including lists of movies and the discussion questions that were used in his research. Couples can also sign up to participate in a follow-up online study of the movie and talk intervention at his site. So all in all, it seems that using the relationship conflicts portrayed in movies is a good place to begin discussions with your lover and a safe place to open up, trust, and listen with compassion. For what it's worth, I think every one of us should take responsibility for improving our relationship without seeking to justify our actions or to blame our partner for anything that appears to be less than how we would like it. What are your thoughts on that, Pretty Princess? You know, sometimes, I, I think it's great information. You know, it does take lots of different aspects to make relationships work. I was thinking right then about, you know, what you do when you have a bad day. Or what what I do when I, I mean, there are times I'm, I'm aware that I'm in a bad mood. So, uh. I will often just tell you, I'm I'm cranky today, <laughs> ignore me. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think that works. But there are, I think I would say, respect for the individuality of your partner. I think that is so easy to get lost when you're in a relationship or you have a family, you know, um, just the, the normal habits that you have. If, when you put the whole unit above everything else, 
then I think relationships can fall apart simply because, you know, your partner isn't being treated like an individual. We are individuals too. So you have to, you have to be able to handle both. Yeah, amen. And there is a real trick when you start passing around respect to your children and they decide that they're your equal and, Life is challenging. Isn't it fun? Very challenging. But we're lucky. We have two wonderful children, and and you're pretty good to me, other than for the beatings that you... You like them. You like them. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Professor Jay Garfield. Now, in my view, you can spell erudition, G-A-R-F-I-E-L-D. Indeed, when he describes his life, I think to myself, wow, you know, that's for me next time around. Evelyn wrote, thank you so much for today's program. I especially love the discussion about the death of Ivan Illich. Yes, we all will die, but Ivan didn't think he was mortal. It was an unexpected idea, so many of us secretly feel that way. And isn't that true? put it away, we push it away, we push it away. Mark wrote, I like today's show as well. While I didn't agree with everything Dr. J. Garfield had to say, I like that he, as a philosopher, doesn't have the gloomy disposition that many philosophers, at least those in the West, have, but has a passion for his discipline and an uplifting view of people in life. He seems to want to combine living a good life with helping to make the world a better place. But okay, you want provocative? Here is provocative. So what are beliefs? Beliefs are judgments each one of us makes about ourselves and the world. The question is whether our judgments are based on reality or error. Hume was a skeptic. He thought that we could never truly gain objective knowledge of the world through reason, since reason itself is error-prone, not to mention the limits of our perceptions. So if our beliefs are probabilistic at best and degenerate into self-destruction at worst, then why do we still believe? According to him, we believe because it is a part of our human nature. We need to believe. We still believe, not because we know our judgments are factual, but because our imagination comes up with a narrative of how we want the world to be. For me, epistemological uncertainty is not consistent with my understanding of what it means for me to be on the spiritual path, nor to be on a physical journey as a thoughtful human in the natural world. Unfortunately, much of conventional philosophy and science has accepted Hume's skepticism and in many cases sought Kantian constructs to fill the gap. Now, Mark just happens to be our guest today, so we'll ask him about uh, what he means by uh, epistemological uncertainties aren't acceptable. I'd like to know how we get to an epistemological certainty. Kathleen wrote, Eldon, excellent show. It was too close to the end of the show when we mentioned, when he mentioned he likes how Singapore handles consensus and religious expression. What I wish there was time to ask was that Singapore also has a very good school system and a very low crime rate. I have seen interviews with those in charge there who attribute that to high expectations, cooperation amongst the administration of a school, teachers in charge of their classes, and parental support with a lot of discipline in all ways. Same with the crime rate. You can't. You can get in trouble in Singapore for spitting your gum out on the sidewalk, and they have harsh measures for certain crimes. What does he think of that? What do you think of that? 
Just curious, my husband was in Singapore a number of years ago on business and found it a delightful place. He was welcomed and treated kindly and respected their culture and laws. He said he felt like he had found his lost tribe. Oliver wrote, I found his disclosure that most universities ignore the non-Western philosophies, religions, a point well made. Like you, I wanted to major in philosophy, and 99% of my reading is that. Found it ironic that whilst his point was well made about ignoring other philosophies, he seems to have forgotten, judging by the table of contents in his great courses DVD, the greatest of them all, Plato and Socrates. How could he do that when it's said that all of Western philosophy is but a footnote to Plato? Would love to ask him that. Maybe you can. Thanks again for the great content you share every week. It was Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead, who said uh, all of Western work is a footnote to Plato. And, of course, not all philosophers agree with that. I kind of uh, share Whitehead's position, too. But, okay. Janet wrote, I don't know which I like most, your radio shows or your inner talk programs. I have benefited so much from both. Well, you know, the good deal here, Janet, is you don't need to choose. You can enjoy them both. SC wrote, I have enjoyed your intertalk programs over the years with great success. Donna wrote, I just wanted to give you a new warm fuzzy. I listen to your show all the time. A year ago, I bought your relationship collection and it saved my marriage. Thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you, Donna. Uh, thank all of you for your feedback and support. Now, Ravinder, you have a special on a rela- on this relationship collection right now. Yeah, we do. We were trying to, you know, figure out what we could do special for Valentine's week. And then, you know, we just got thinking that relationships are so much more than just the one with your, you know, your intimate partner. All relationships are important. And I got to thinking, you know, um, when your relationships are working, when you've got a solid relationship with your family and your friends and with your children, even when you go to the Starbucks on the corner and, you know, the person there greets you warmly every time you go in, when you build up all of those relationships, everything just feels better. It, you know, it doesn't really matter what problems you are when you've got a shoulder to cry on or someone to give you a hug when you need it or a boss that understands you, you know, Things just get easier and easier. So we took our Positive Relationships Collection. It was one that you just created recently. Um, it's actually, if you were to buy all the programs in it individually, it would be $250. But we have the complete collection on special right now for just $79. Um, and this, you know, this collection will help you end codependent patterns, cultivate an inner sense of peace, become a better listener, and we can all do with that. Learn to communicate effectively, the double side of listening, you know. Developing, you know, making an active effort to develop positive relationships wherever you go. Releasing the fear of rejection, that's a huge one too, because so often we hold back because we're afraid we'll be rejected. The charisma and the honesty, you know, all of these things that um, really help a relationship. So if you want information on that, just go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com and click on special offers, special offers and you will find the link there to take you to more information. It is a great deal. And as one of your readers already said, it made a huge difference to her. Makes yeah, a there's a new contagion in this room. You you can't yeah. say the words. I can't. <laughs> what is that? We have not been drinking, I promise you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your email to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We can't get all of your letters on the air, but they do impact our programming. And once again, I both appreciate and thank you for your input and continued support. Now to this week's show, and we have two guests this week, each sharing some insight into self-responsibility. Both of our guests are real people who have struggled in their path finding the right, and I'll put that in quotation marks, the right way to live. You can think of them as your neighbors or as the folks down the street. Neither of them put on a so-called guru pretense. They are very real. They are rather like all of us, working their way through life, doing their best to live responsibly. Okay, our first guest is Mr. Mark Goodkin. Mark is a frequent visitor to our chat room, and it might surprise some of you, but we have on more than one occasion selected a show guest from comments made in the chat room. Ravinder's chat room has a way of attracting some truly remarkable people. Mark describes himself this way, quote, I don't consider myself an expert on the subject of Eldon's question on moral responsibility. I consider myself a layperson with no formal education in philosophy or ethics, someone who wants to be a moral person and make a difference in the world. In recent years, I've become a student of philosophy, interested in the philosophical foundations of our personal freedoms and republic form of government. I consider myself on a spiritual path, however... I don't think it is enough to justify our personal freedoms and rights on the basis of something endowed by a creator, although from a spiritual or religious standpoint that might be true. I think it is important to justify our freedoms and rights based on a secular view. Okay, Mark's consideration of the idea of self-responsibility from top to bottom has led to presentations and papers that he's done on the subject. Mark begins his treatise this way, quote, I listened to a radio talk show host uh, who posed this question. Do we have a moral responsibility to be aware of the suffering of others and to do our best to help abate that suffering? Now, that sounds like a question I might ask. So do we? What are your thoughts? Well, I know what I think, but let's get our guest in here and see what he discovered. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Mark Goodkin. Hi, Eldon. How are you doing? Can you hear me? Mark, you are yes. live. Welcome to the show. Are you here? Yes. Can you hear me? I can hear you very clearly now. Can you hear us? Yes. Okay. Tell us, Mark, why did you decide to investigate this question? Well, uh, you asked the question earlier last year, and at that time I had been studying philosophy for over a year, and actually... Uh, we were discussing ethics, ethics and moral responsibility. So I thought that your question was very timely. So I just kind of took it on myself to want to answer your question. I, I think it's a very important question. It's a question about personal freedom and choice. So uh, it, it gave me an opportunity to try to investigate moral responsibility and develop my ideas more. Okay, now, when I go to your website, and, and we'll come back to what you said, but when I go to your website, uh, your website starts by informing us that conscious individualism is an antidote to collectivism. Mm-hmm. Flesh that out some for me, please. Okay, conscious individualism is an article that I wrote a couple of years ago, even before I got into the 
you know, the interest in moral responsibility. But I. But, but aren't I, the two of them tied together, actually, Mark? Oh, very much. Uh, conscious, you know, we, we live in a society where, which is based on individualism. Individualism means that, you know, the individual has freedoms, freedoms to associate, to think, uh, to make choices, and to act upon them. And um, so there, there's always been, uh, I, you know, especially in the past four or five years, there's been a lot of criticism against individualism. You know, we're, in other, for example, we have many problems. These problems are, are reaching a perfect storm, you know, a, a perfect crisis. And unless we do something about it, you know, our, our human existence may may no longer exist. You know, we, we may be threatened. And many of these these uh, crises are man-made. And so what a lot of these people, you know, who talk about bring up such crisis, what they say is they say that, you know, a lot of this comes from individualism. It comes from our choices we make. And that our choices have been based on selfishness. The whole idea of individualism is based on self-interest and, and selfishness. And there, there's really no incentive, according to these people, for somebody who's making a choice to really think of the long-term consequences of their actions, how it impacts the planet. So they have called, by and large, for some form of collectivism. So I just really didn't like that. You know, I've been hearing that all the time. You know, I still hear that. And I just wanted to try to respond to that, to find out whether we can really maintain our individualism, our personal freedoms, and at the, at the same time overcome our problems and, you know, deal with these, these impending crises that they talk right. about. Right. So in order to do that, we have to be more mindful. We have to be mindful of our actions. We, we have to uh, – we can still be selfish and pursue our self-interest which isn't a bad thing. You know, we all have needs that, that we need to fulfill, but to do so, you know, mindfully. Yeah, I, you know, if I may add this, I think, you know, from a, a taxonomical standpoint, uh, individualism is typically the society that is organized around the idea that your individual desires um, are precedent over the collective group. Where in a collect, uh, collectivism society uh, like China, the the desires, the needs of the group trump the individual desires. And what you're saying, if I've got it correctly, is that you believe we can have the best of the both worlds if all we do is become mindful. Have I got that correct? Yeah. To put it simply, uh, we being yes, it is. That's that's correct. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but being mindful, you know, you've talked about the shadow self. I think you used the word bag or something. Yeah, the long bag. That's the long bag. word. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, to to uh, describe what the shadow self is, you know, each one of us, you know, has a shadow self, which Carl Jung point, pointed out, the famous psychologist from the, 1900, uh, the 1800s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the shadow self is basically the accumulation of our negative programming. It's our negative beliefs. They, they reside at the subconscious level, and we are largely motivated by those negative beliefs. And so the idea that when you become more mindful, 
it's a path. It's a personal path that you take to overcome those those false beliefs, to identify what they are and to overcome them and to replace them with beliefs that are based on fact and reality. And maybe be a little more responsible, a little more forward thinking. We have a break coming up. When we come back, I, I, I want to pick up with... Uh, this notion of why you think a secular perspective is preferred when we're answering the question of, uh, of personal responsibility and ethical moral reasoning. Uh, we're speaking with Mr. Mark Goodkin about ethics and moral responsibility. You can learn more about Mark by visiting his website, consciousindividualism.com. That's consciousindividualism, as one word, dot com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is life without relationships? What would success mean if there were no one to share it with? Good relationships can make the worst situations better and the best situations fantastic. And we are not only talking about personal relationships, our significant other. No, we are talking about all relationships. Friends, family, colleagues, employers, teachers, students, healthcare professionals, service assistants in stores and restaurants, and on and on. When you have good relationships, most other problems just dissipate. And now we have an InnerTalk collection designed especially for relationships. Learn how to end codependent patterns. Cultivate an inner sense of peace. Become a better listener. Learn to communicate effectively. Develop positive relationships wherever you go. Release the fear of rejection. Add a spark of charisma to your personality. And generate honesty in all of your relationships. Eldon Taylor's new Positive Relationships Collection consists of nine programs on eight CDs and uses a variety of technologies. Use the patented and proven InnerTalk subliminal programs in the background as you go about your day or while sleeping, and use the headphone programs once or twice a day to give you that immediate boost. What is life without relationships? Pretty empty. Bring meaning and joy to your life by cultivating great relationships wherever you go. The Positive Relationships Collection is a $250 value, but you can get your copy right now for just $79. Just go to www.provocativeenlightenment.com and click on Special Offers. Your life will never be the same. I truly love supporting causes I believe in. As a researcher, I know that the body is hardwired to release those good neurochemicals when we do something as simple as write a check for our favorite charity. Every month, Ravinder and I give to Women for Women International. Their mission statement says, Women for Women International supports women in war-torn regions with financial and emotional aid, job skills training, rights education, and small business assistance so they can rebuild their lives. We all know what an important role women have in contributing to any society. Women for Women International believes that lasting change can only be achieved 
when women have access to both knowledge and resources. I urge you to support this fine cause. You can contribute by going to womenforwomen.org. That's womenforwomen.org. Thank you. The great courses cover a broad array of university-level disciplines. The lectures in each course are either 30 or 45 minutes long. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website at thegreatcourses.com and imagine how much you could learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lecturers are university professors carefully selected by The Great Courses and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence. One of the most important questions you can ask yourself on your self-improvement journey is, how high is up? Regardless of whether you are a total novice or a seasoned veteran in your search for spirituality or self-help, there is still more to learn to put into practice, and to master. Every week, Eldon speaks with scientists, researchers, experts, and those who have simply learned from their own life experiences, bringing you valuable insights that you can put into practice in your own lives. A number of our guests have put together special packages at huge discounts just for our Provocative Enlightenment radio audience. Packages and learning materials that can advance your personal growth. To learn more about these incredible special offers, please visit www.provocativeenlightenment.com and click on Special Offers. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Mr. Mark Goodkin about moral philosophy and, and, and personal responsibility. We ask our guests for up to three songs that really have meaning in their lives, their life songs, if you will. This often provides some very interesting insight to our guests. Now, we just played some of Go the Distance by Michael Bolton. Why is this song important to you, Mark, and how does it tell us about who you are? Well, I've always liked the song. I, I remember first hearing it, I guess, about 15 years ago. And I just I just 
Really loved it. Uh, and then I started listening to the lyrics, because I, I guess I just liked the melody at first. Um, and it is. It's about the hero's journey that each one of us can choose to go through, to take. You know, we can choose to be the hero in our own lives or not. You know, we all, we all have to choose to live. And then the next question is, do we live with a purpose? And then what is that purpose? And that's something that each one of us has to define. And then once we choose a purpose, we have to figure out how we're going to achieve that. And it's an uphill climb. It's, it's a long distance. And in the end, if you complete it, you are in a way a hero in your own life. Tell me, sir, have you defined your purpose? Uh, my, my purpose is... To, you know, I have to live a meaningful life. I, I have to live a life where, um, you know, I do make a difference in the world. And like that. Um, that, that's not one thing that I have learned along the way is that I cannot neglect my own needs. And um, so I have to kind of balance my fulfilling my own needs and, you know, enjoying my time in life with, you know, living the type of purpose that's going to help make the world a better place. All right. Before the break, Mark, I suggested to you that I was going to ask you why the secular perspective? Um, I, th that's why I took up philosophy because I, you know, philosophy, as you know, is mainly secular, at least the conventional philosophy. And you know, Aristotle Plato, all those guys, they, they were secularists. And I know that it attracts a lot of secular people, people who are agnostic and atheist. And I started doing some... So, I mean, just to, to add it in, some of the great philosophers weren't secular at all. You know, no, correct. Were, you know, but I, I think that in order for me to be able to defend my freedoms, my personal freedoms, and to defend our way of life, you know, in this country... Um, that I need, I need to justify my, our freedoms based on a secular view because not everybody is going to accept the idea that our rights come, are endowed by a creator, even though it does say that, you know, within our documents, our Constitution right. and Bill of Rights. So um, that, and then I discovered that it is possible to justify our freedoms from a secular point of view. And I was excited about that. I wasn't sure about that at first. And then, from a spiritual standpoint, I can kind of add to that. I can build upon the my, my secular justification, if I need to. Okay, well, let's do this, then. Let's just start, start right on down your path. I like how you've approached the question, are we in some part responsible for doing what we can to abate the suffering of others? You began by deriving some working definitions, and we should probably do that here as well. So, in your view, just by way of the definition that you use, what is an ethical duty and or a moral responsibility if any such thing really exists? Okay, well, moral responsibility does, it is a term that comes from ethics. Ethics is a branch of philosophy. 
And moral responsibility is different from legal responsibility, just, just to let, let the listeners know that. Sure. Um, moral responsibility has to do with our actions and the consequences of our actions. Um, you know, as people, as, as living creatures on this earth who can think and plan long term, we, we act, we don't act just to act, we act for a purpose. We are purpose driven. And generally, our purpose and our goals are to fulfill some kind of need that we have. We, we have needs all the time. We fundamentally, we need to survive. So, but getting back to moral responsibility, when we, we can, we can have purposes and goals all day, but once we are committed to acting upon a goal and to actually doing the act, that, then it becomes our moral responsibility. So we're, we're, in effect, acting on our own behalf, on the behalf of some goal that we have chosen that's going to benefit us, that we have passion about. Moral duty is, sort of subverts, subverts that idea. Moral duty is a form of moral responsibility, and what it does is it takes the goal away from the individual. The individual is still acting, but he is not acting towards any goal that he, has cho- he or she has chosen. He, he's acting um, towards somebody else's goal, you know, by having to obey a command of another. And that's why I'm so against moral duty, because it opposes... Uh, excuse me. Okay. My other phone was going off. Um, I oppose moral, moral duty be- because it, it removes the element of personal freedom to, to choose for him or herself what what their goal is going to be and how to how to act upon it. Okay, let me let me just stop you right there. Let me let me you know let's take this out of the heady stuff and let's bring it right down. Uh, <laughs> in the next hour, uh, our guest is a fellow by the name of Richard Rowland, and uh, like myself, uh, Richard spent a lot of time in law enforcement. In fact, he spent nearly thirty years in law enforcement. He's a Vietnam veteran. And so let me give you the kind of thing that comes to my mind when you, you start fractionating the difference between an ethical duty and a, and a moral uh, obligation or responsibility. So assume I'm walking through the park, Mark, and, uh, you know, I see uh, a, a couple of guys and they're beating up an old man. Uh, looks like he's about to be robbed. They've got him down on the ground and these two younger, you know, uh, I would call them punks, but we'll just say, you know, uh, teenagers, they're working over this guy. What? I know what I have to do. I have to do it. I'm, I'm built that way. I'm wired that way. It's a compulsion within me. But according to the way you're defining this, what is it that a human being is obliged, if anything, to do? Okay, well... If, if I'm walking through the park and I see somebody being robbed, mugged, by two, two muggers, um, it's still a choice of mine. It's still a choice that I have to make because I have to consider the risks involved. So you don't think you're less of a human being if what you do is just continue on down the highway? You it's know, a personal... Well, these two big guys, they could beat me up. And, you know, by the time I get to a phone... Who really, you know, it, it, somebody else is going to take care of it, you know. Besides, I'm busy. I'm, I'm in a hurry, you know. I've, I've got things to do, important places to be. 
the what uh, has been termed the Lucifer effect in the human being, that selfie, self-centered part that takes care of itself. You believe that, that we're entitled to that. I, I don't think we're entitled to it. I think it's, it's a right that we have, that we have a right to make a choice and to, for whatever reason, but, you know, the reason, it's an individual thing. So you don't uh, fault that person. I'm sorry, I, I just want to make sure I understand this. So you don't fault the person that just walks on by. I I may look at that person, and if that person is just being apathetic and, you know, just kind of blows off, if, if, I, if I figure that that person has the means to help that other person, you know, where that person... The, help, the helping person's not going to lose their life or get hurt, but, the, you know, let's say that person knows karate or... Is or they have a cell phone in their pocket. They can dial 911. Well, yeah. I, I mean, personally, I would do that. I, I would weigh the risks, and the, if I had to, I would dial 911. The question, isn't, the question isn't what you would personally do. The question is what you think the human condition is obligated to do if anything and if i'm understanding you you're saying we're not obligated to do anything no because the reason no, i say yes, that i mean yeah no wait a minute no okay. we're not obligated or no that's not what you're saying uh why well, I, I prefer to use the word duty in that case uh, okay. we it is not our moral duty because of our common tie with humanity or you know however you want to justify it to have to go in there, to have to jump in there. So it's not our moral duty. So the fact that, uh, I mean, I I guess we just have to look at this in a quid pro quo way then, right? Um, I mean, if that's the incident, then by precedent, uh, you know, if it's you and you're the victim, you fully respect somebody just deciding to pocket their phone and walk on by. I wouldn't like that at all. And I, I, if I looked at somebody and they just pocketed their phone and didn't have any real, real reason, uh, would that you I thought judge that were... person? Would you judge that person, Mark? Would I what? Would you judge them? Would you, in your mind, you're the victim. You see a person they could interdict. They they could make a phone call at the very least. They shrug their shoulders. They walk on by. They're sure. busy doing whatever they're doing. Are you going to judge that person? Yeah, of course I would. I, I would get angry at that person, which which means that I, I would feel that, you know, they unjustly walked by and they, they, they could have helped. Okay, and, you just said it. They unjustly walked by. How well, that's, can they that's unjustly my, walk by if there's no duty? Well, I mean, that's just how I would feel. That That's just... Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm just I curious. Mean, I just wanted to flesh this out I know, because I, it, it so violates... Um, you know who I am, uh, sure. and and I don't know that that's that means anything other than you know the centipede and the frog story. I, I would this. be, yeah, I I would be against. I mean, personally, I would do my best to help the person. If I have a if I have a smartphone or if I can flag other people to come come over to help, I would do that. If if I think that I can take on whoever the mugger is, if I feel that you know I'm not risking my life. Um, you know, if it's somebody I know that's being mugged, that's different. But if it's a stranger, somebody I really don't know, um, then I may risk, you know, weigh those risks. If it's a child, I may just go in there anyways and risk my life. But that's still fundamentally, we're talking fundamentally here, that's my own choice. 
You know, it's reasonable, I think, in every sense of the word, to evaluate, as you say, a scenario. I mean, uh-huh. I would encourage that. Law enforcement encourages that. I need you to turn that phone off, Mark. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, we, we, we do all think that the responsible thing to do is to assess the situation. You know, we don't want to see somebody else get hurt. We don't want two victims. On the other hand, to just ignore it, uh, the Genovese effect, if you will, the young woman who everyone saw her beaten, attacked, and killed, but they all did nothing about it. And that's why it gets the name, the Genovese effect. That is held by, you know, many people to be the lowest part of of human response, not the higher part, and certainly not a philosophy that I would embrace. But be that as it may, let's take the next step. Why well, can't can, can then, I just quickly answer oh, please, that? Yes. Okay. Um, I think that you know because I, I think that fundamentally moral, moral responsibility in that scenario is a is a choice. Um, you know we. You know, the person needs knowledge. You know, I mean, is the person making a good choice? Are they making a bad choice? So you and I would both agree that the person who just kind of blows off the situation and walks away is making a poor choice. So, you know, then the person who is making the choice maybe doesn't have good knowledge. Maybe they're misinformed. And, you know, and, and so it's just a matter of people being educated and... But to make it a duty, to consider it a duty is more of like coercion or justifying it by, you know, that we're part of humanity or something, and that to me that doesn't fly. Okay. All right, then let's take it to the next level. Do we have a moral responsibility or duty, however you want to hash it, to be aware of the suffering of others and to do our best to help abate that suffering? That, again, is a personal question. You get down to whether it's a moral obligation, obligation meaning personal choice, versus moral duty. And these two terms, by the way, have been conflated in common usage, but I I just choose to use two separate words to separate them, to describe Mm -hmm. how how it's different. Um, It's not a moral duty. It's it's the same thing. it's It's a personal choice that, the individual makes. It's not not a group decision, and it's not decided by the government. Uh, it, it's your individual decision, and you, if you if you want to help abate the suffering in the world, then you have to see the well-being of other people as a value, something that you value. You have to you choose that as a value, and then that's your goal. And then you figure out how what kind of actions you're going to take to help abate that suffering. And Let me ask you this, Mark. Sure. You, you want a world that's a peaceful world, right? Right. Okay. Now, if we don't have a value system that we all agree upon, if it's all just a matter of choice and somehow we have not raised the level of choice to where we all choose the right thing or, or the same thing or we recognize that there is something beyond the nature of just should I, shouldn't I, there's really a more of a duty involved here. If we haven't done that about some value, is it possible to ever have world peace? 
Um, well, I don't. I don't believe in moral relativism. I don't believe in the idea well, that. You know, but we if just it's all left kind of a choice, you must. That's exactly where I was going to go. If it's left a choice, you must accept moral relativism, because no, if there's not at no all. duty, okay, then show me the door out, please. Okay. Well, ethics is a science which guides our actions. You know, we are humans, and we act in life. We have to act. We make choices and so forth. And so what, you know, what ethics does is that it helps us come up with a value system to guide our actions. And that's exactly what you're talking about, so that we can make proper choices. There's, there's different schools of ethics out there. Um, and the important thing, then, would be for the individual to choose an ethical system that's based on reality. And that's not based on some error. And there's plenty, plenty of conventional ethical systems out there that are based on error. If, if you have an ethical system, the one that I, that I follow is the one that where we choose our values, we still make choices, we, we choose something to be a value, but we are guided by knowledge that's based on reality, that's based on principles. And so that when we choose values, we are guided by an ultimate purpose or goal and be in our own lives. And so there, there's sort of like some North Star. There's some point of, you know, towards which we can navigate. We're not just willy-nilly choosing whatever we feel like doing. But it seems to me, you know, and, and again, I, I don't mean to be antagonistic at all, sure. but it seems to me that you use the phrase North Star, that there is a, a point, a something that the entire world must agree upon because it is the North Star. It's not a matter of choice. So let's just, you know, you bring this down to the kind of stuff I work on. How, what, what first guiding principle could you come up with with the world? Could we say that all life is sacred? You know, all human life is sacred. Could we agree upon that? Because you see, the minute we agree upon a single principle, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, we have created a duty. There isn't a choice any longer. This is really a duty. Um, We have duties the way you've defined them. We have duties according to law. Once we agree that this is the North Star, to use your metaphor, then are we not, do we not have a duty? Well, what I do is I I first take the word we out of it. Uh, Ethics has to do with the individual. Uh, You know, how the individual conducts his own life. We're talking about how we're going to ever have world peace. Okay, so what what are some of the moral truths, or what, what are some of the ideas that ethics usually goes after. It goes after things like justice. You know, what is justice? Uh, what's freedom? What are values? You know, those kinds of things. What are virtues? And so the, the type of ethics that I espouse is the type of ethics, you know, that that defines these very clearly. You know, you know, justice is a moral truth. You know, people have rights and so forth. Freedom, people require freedom to choose values and act. Uh, people have needs. They, they have, 
and they, they need values in order to survive. And the standard is the measurement of all of their values, which is their own life. And, and so that it's, if, if people, if more people follow a particular ethical system, hence the value system, then they will all agree. But it's no, an individual but, thing. In the real world, you can see that doesn't happen. In Pakistan, there is an ethical system. It's entirely different than the ethical system that we may have in this country. Mm-hmm. That ethical system makes it fine to discharge such things as honor killing. Uh, we would find that generally as a society, and again, I'm using the word we, I individually, if that also matters to you, would find much of that behavior abhorrent. So my point is, and really it comes down to this, are there moral truths which apply universally to all people around the world? There are moral truths which apply to all people around the world, and ethics, what, what, what an ethical system will do, is it will try to define what those moral truths are. Now, most conventional ethical systems, which include convention, you know, relig- most religious ethical systems, like what you're talking about, um, are not based on moral truths. They're based on error. And so what I do, you know, the, the idea is that if I know that I'm following an ethical system that is based on moral truths, which are universal, then I would not tolerate that sort of thing in another country. And I, I would want to, uh, you know, I would not want to turn a blind eye right. to that. But it's not, I don't consider it my duty. It's, it's, a, it's a choice that I still make that, you know, most reasonable people will make if they know the mor- have moral truths. And, challenging work. I love what you do, and, and yeah. it is very challenging work. And the best part about it is it's not a calisthenic. Indeed, you know, this is something we all need to work out. We all need to have a path in front of us. Mark, we're out of time. Tell everybody how they can reach you, uh, learn more about what your work is, and uh, read some of your, your uh, papers. Okay, well, uh, the website is called ConsciousIndividualism.com. Great site. I recommend that you all go there. Appreciate you sharing very much today, Mark. Now, if you'd like to know more about Mark and his work, then please visit his website. Again, it's uh, MarkConsciousIndividualism.com, correct? ConsciousIndividualism.com, and uh, thanks so much, Eldon, for having me on the show. Indeed, a pleasure to have you, Mark. Appreciate you coming on. All right. We have a short film for you today during our break, so if you're not already in our chat room, now is the time to get there. So just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat and choose that chat room button near the top of the page. We'll be right back after a brief station break. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting about personal responsibility. In this hour, we'll be joined by Richard Rowland, author of Unspoken Messages. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies. And from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And I love your comments and feedback. 
And you know, Facebook is such a great place for that. So please join me on Facebook. You just go to facebook.com forward slash Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. All right. Uh, our next guest is Richard Rowland. He is a two-tour veteran of the Vietnam War who was diagnosed with a rare blood cancer related to exposure to dioxin, commonly known as Agent Orange. I was a very good friend of that. He is also a retired sergeant from the Kentucky State Police following a 28-year career in law enforcement. Fifteen years ago, he started a horse boarding, training, foaling facility in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, where he resides with his wife, Jennifer, and son, Richard. I first became aware of Richard through an email that identified our similarities, chiefly those of law enforcement and our passion for horses. I had the good fortune to read Richard's first book, his new book, his only book, Unspoken Messages. I loved the book and encouraged him to find a publisher. I suggested A House, and that's where he landed. Bernie Siegel had this to say, quote, Richard is what I call a survivor, and his words can teach us to be survivors too. He is a wounded healer, ready to serve. Close quote. I believe the unspoken messages in Richard's book teach us of our responsibility to meet life in a certain way. I think Richard would say that this way, in one word, is simply hope. Now, does that mean that we should hope that someone else will take care of those in need? Or that we should just hope for a better outcome in all things? Or that hope is a force in and of itself in the universe? And or just what? What do you think hope in this context means? I know what I think, but the man himself is here today. So we'll let him dress his story up and exactly what he means and how he came to his conclusions. So let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Richard Rowland. Good afternoon, Eldon. Good to talk hey, to you. It's great to speak with you. I've been looking forward to this. We planned this one, what, almost two years ago now? Yes, we have. It's been a long road to get here, and I'm happy to be here today. I'm happy to have you here. You know, we like to know three things from our guests. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So, you know, to begin with, tell us a little bit about yourself, Richard, and what prompted you to write Unspoken Messages? Well, it's a funny story. I guess after I re received the diagnosis of uh, multiple myeloma, um, the first two doctors that I talked to offered uh, no hope. Uh, one of them, a uh, 25-year relationship that I had with this doctor, and he always preached the words that we didn't come with an expiration tag, and then he issued me one. <laughs> it it has words are powerful. And they have a tendency to strip you of hope. You know, and I don't want somebody to give me false hope, but I don't think people should take all hope away because too many things change as time progresses. And one of my favorite sayings is you don't tend the seeds of negativity that are planted by others because people have a tendency to do that. You're told something and then you believe it. And that's not in my makeup to do. But anyway, shortly after the diagnosis and then a backup diagnosis, I was searching um, desperately for something. There, there had to be more than I had experienced in life. And I went to see a psychic medium, first time in my life ever to do this. 
And I was really surprised, coming from a scientific background as, as an investigator, I was surprised at how accurate she was with some of the things that she told me. But one of the things she told me was, I see you're going to write a book, and it's going to help a lot of people. And for the first time in a long time, I laughed. I still have the tape here. She makes cassette tapes for you. But for the first time in a long time, I laughed out loud because I didn't know anything about writing books. And I was sure that she was wrong. And three weeks ago, I mailed her a copy of the book that she said I was going to write. She didn't know anything about it. So that's how the, the book actually, the thought was planted, the seed was planted. And it's then I experienced book. a couple of things. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I just going to say it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful cover. Uh, did you design this cover? I mean, this yes. is an, incre- I, an I, incredible cover. The idea for the cover was mine. And I had a very good graphic artist out of Chicago, Illinois, um, that actually put the pictures together. But it's, it's some of my photography and my wife's photography put together. Uh, Greg, Greg Ambrose was able to put it in, in the form that we wanted it to be in, both the front and the back of the book. Well, it's, it, it is it, nothing, uh, nothing second-rate about this book. It is a beautiful book, and it is done very, very nicely. Let's, uh, you, you know, 28-year law enforcement officer, and yeah. you go to a psychic. You know, for a lot of folks, that's like you did what? I mean, I... I can remember I used to I used to have coffee with a, a good friend of mine at the end of every day somewhere around five o'clock. He was chief of police in a small community outside of Salt Lake City, and and uh, one day he called my home, Richard, and I happened to be meditating. I was trying to learn to meditate. Now this is, you know, this is what thirty five plus years ago, yeah. uh, and uh, my housekeeper answered the phone and and he asked for me and she said he's meditating. I can't disturb him. I, I, you know, I never lived it, that down. To this day, if I see Dwayne, he's going to give me a raz about meditating. Uh, and, and I know that you can relate to that. So, yes, I can. 28 years, whatever on earth moved you to go see a psychic? Um, I, I guess it was just the search. It was, it was all of a sudden, you know, I was one of those people that just, knew I was going to live forever. I really never faced my own mortality. That's, that's coming from two tours in Vietnam and 28 years in law enforcement. I, I really never gave dying any thought. And I guess when I was faced with the with the potential for that to occur rather quickly from what I was being told, it, you just sat back on your heels and you wonder, was this all there was? Was there not supposed to be more to this? And my wife handed me a book that she had tried to get me to read earlier, and it was Many Lives, Many Masters by Brian Weiss. And that started the whole thing, because I look, it's my nature to look for proof. Don't just tell me, show me. And the things I read in that book planted more seeds of of maybe the things you've been spoon-fed and the things that you've believed your whole life aren't really true. Maybe there's a lot more to this than you ever thought. You know, a week ago we had uh, Jay Garfield on the show, and we talked about Tolstoy's um, work, short story, Ivan Illich, and how, you know, 
difficult it is for him to face uh, mortality. And uh, once again, we mentioned that this in, in the first hour of this show. I think facing mortality is something that, as human beings, we don't practice. It's not something that uh, that we do. And as a result, um, it sneaks up on us. And sometimes, as with your instant, uh, you, you have enough time to to investigate and uh, to look at, what should I say, more meaning, greater meaning, greater purpose, and just the day-to-day stuff that we, it's so easy for us to get in, in the habit of doing. Uh, I'm going to ask you this now, because, you know, this is where I'm going with all of this. Do you think, Richard, that if we were to pay attention earlier to our mortality uh, and really soul-search that, recognize that we are terminal in this physical form and that that could happen at any moment that we would find more meaning more depth in our lives earlier in our lives as opposed to waiting until we're about to step through that door exactly had I known years ago like I wish the things that I know now my life would have been so much different than it was, and it's not that I have any regrets. I have no regrets, including being diagnosed with this. Things would have had more meaning. They would have had more depth. They would have had more magic. There would have been more to the world than what I was led to believe. And I am, you hear people say, and and I heard people, I read where people said that cancer was a, a cancer diagnosis was a blessing. And when I first read those words, I thought, well, you know, no, it's not. And I could have gone the rest of my life without ever hearing those words. But now I realize that it is a blessing. Because I'd hate to think that I would have been walking down the road or working on the farm and just had a a massive heart attack and died, which I don't believe you do, but left this physical world without the knowledge that I've gained by facing this before it happens, because it, you get to see the magic. You, you, you see things in a different light. See, one of the great takeaways that I come off of your book with is the realization that you've opened yourself up and shared, you know, deeply personal experiences that have nudged me in, and I, you know, I think I'm a little you know, semi-conscious anyway, nudged me to look even more at uh, at the meaning of life and, and at this, this whole construct. Let's do this now. Let's, let's go to, I want you to tell us about the post-it note titled Hope that was stuck to the front of your computer. There was motivation for the book. The, the motivation has never been to make money. The, never, the motivation was never to be famous or to gain fame. When this project started over three years ago, I wrote a note on a post-it note and stuck it to the computer, which has transferred to another computer. Um, and, and the word is simply hope, H-O-P-E. That's been the motivation for the book because so many people, and, and this is not a slam on Western medicine, 
so many people listen to those crystal ball prognosis that are issued by medical professionals and believe them. And they let that hope be stripped from them, and they put all of their trust in in that person or that methodology. methodology. And the hope is stripped from them. They no longer have hope. They, they, they want to believe what this person says. And, and you read time after time after time how somebody has been told uh, they were going to die within six months or they were going to die in six months, and they do. I've experienced that personally in three different instances, almost to the day. And it's, once again, it brings to mind that thought that it, if, you, if seeds of negativity are going to be planted and you tend them, they're going to come to fruitation. And if you don't, they're not. And I think I've been a perfect example of that. You know, Richard, uh, for what it's worth, I, I was involved. We ran a study, an oncology study, a few years ago where we used uh, a auditory interdiction that was just designed to change how you, you know, w- what your expectation was about uh, the progress of, of uh, cancer and hopefully, you know, even lead to remissions. And we did a three-year follow-up, and there was a, a group that just, yelled at me that broke out of the data and that was that every single person whose physician said they did not believe the mind had a role in wellness was deceased and yet every single patient whose physician believed the mind had a role in wellness was in remission to me that's you know it's it's almost like Here's the self-fulfilling prophecy. Unfortunately, what most people don't realize is that in the presence of an authority, such as your doctor, that area of the brain that, that does the discriminating, to use the words of PET or MRI people, turns off, just turns off. So you do accept it, and it does become you know, a suggestion that for all intent and purposes um, is your terminal suggestion. Tell us... You went an alternative route. Tell us what you did. Uh, everything. <laughs> uh, in the end, I learned the importance of balance, but in the beginning, I walked away from Western medicine completely because in, in my way of thinking, if, if two doctors could offer me no hope, then why should I stay there? I'll try other things. And I started researching other things. And I've uh, been involved in chiropractic care, acupuncture, energy healers, Reiki practitioners to the point of actually becoming uh, a level two Reiki practitioner. Um, I've used meditation. I've used your CDs, which are wonderful on the subliminal messages when I meditate. Uh, To me, everything is a possibility. The, The possibilities are endless for healing or even as as one doctor said, even if you can't wrap your mind around healing completely and being in a total remission, can you wrap your mind around coexisting with what's going on? And there's no end to the things that you that can heal you. It's where do you place your faith? And as so many in the books that I've read and studied and reread, the key is you have to have faith. In something, and I don't think, I don't think that it really matters 
what you have faith in, as long as you can reach the point where you've got 100% faith in something mentally. And when you reach that point, you're going to get where you want to go. The power of belief. The power of belief. All right. Richard, you spent your life under a slogan that can be stated simply as protect and serve. In the last hour, we discussed uh, personal responsibility. You're defining, and then I think your book addresses how important it is to take the responsibility for your own life, for your own care, your own maintenance, and that's what you're defining here now. So, what I you know, did I hear a hesitation from you? That's where I'm pausing. Did I say something wrong there? No, no. Oh, okay. Okay, so please share with our audience your thoughts on personal responsibility. Are we responsible to do our best to minimize the suffering of others where we have the ability to do so and we can? And if we do, you know, why do we have that responsibility, Richard? The responsibility of the people that know, that understand how this world really works, that you have a responsibility to teach others, and they don't have necessarily a responsibility to follow what you're saying. But when we discover the magic that's really around us and the power that we have within, then then you have a responsibility to teach others about that. You also have a responsibility to help people at all times. Kindness and compassion are a key. And everything that you give, every single thing that you give that goes back whether it's kindness and compassion and love and helping of other people, or if it's hatred and anger and disappointment and negativity, whatever you put out comes back. So wouldn't you rather get all the good things back? And the importance is in in teaching other people, not just about that aspect of it, but the aspects of healing itself and how powerful you, you are when it comes to the healing process within you have the power. Your your belief is what's going to heal you eventually. And if you wrap your mind and if you teach people that you are an immortal soul having a physical experience, you carry this shell around, this shell's going to last so long, and then it's not going to exist anymore. But you are still going to exist. And when you can wrap your mind around that, you become free. And you become more loving and more caring and more compassionate and less fearful of what the future holds. We have a responsibility to everybody, to each of us. We're all part of this. You, you, uh, I had the great opportunity to write a little blurb about your book, and, and I was thrilled to have that opportunity. I almost wrote, this is an extension of your life to now, protect and serve. That's how I see your book. Your book is a message that should give everyone hope, but not just hope. Uh, through, you know, through your own disclosure, I think it, it, it gives us an insight to dimensions of, of our existence, our being, our, our exchanges with others that, that teaches us um, I, I guess the meaning of hope. Let me let me ask you this: What is your favorite passage from the book? My favorite passage from the book itself is is the 
very end of the book, and it would, I guess it'd be difficult for me to pick out a favorite passage, but I think that one sticks with me the most. And it is, it's, it goes like this. The end is never the end, but in space, instead a place to pause before beginning once again. I, death is a celebration. Death is a transition, and it's no more. That, that's what it is. You go from here to somewhere else. And, you know, I still don't know where you go. <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> I don't remember, and I haven't gotten there, but I do know that that's all death is. It's just a transition from here to somewhere else. You speak of that, uh, you know, as earthbound souls, uh, especially when you're talking about animals. Uh, let me, do you, you tell some wonderful stories, and I really, you know, those stories touch me uh, deeply. D- do you see animals as, you know, spiritually speaking, and I know this is strictly opinion, but do you see them as having some kind of an afterlife, Richard? Do I see them as having some, like what, I'm sorry? Some kind of an afterlife, a soul that goes on. Absolutely. Now, I, I know I'm sure there are people that wouldn't believe as I do, but I'm not too awful sure that animals aren't a little more evolved than we are. They have an ability to communicate that's nonverbal, but they communicate well. And as somebody like yourself that's been in the equine world, you realize that horses use body language in their eyes to communicate with each other. and They use the same thing to communicate with us. And if you can, if, if you can learn their language... You can have conversations. I've often said some of the best conversations I've ever had have been with a horse. Amen. Me too. You know, where where did you get the ideas for the stories in your book, sir? They're real life. The ideas are from a lifetime spent with animals, but they're things that some of the things occurred after the diagnosis, after this birth of spirituality in me that were reaffirming that I was on the right path. And some of them were things that I revisited that had happened in the past. But they're all absolutely true stories that occurred uh, in front of me and others. I don't think I was by myself with any of the stories. There there are some great stories in this book, and I'm, I'm going to ask you about those stories, but we, we have less than a minute before the break. So it, you put in your mind what, what your very favorite story is so that when we come back from the break, you can share that very favorite story with us and tell us why it's so important to you and, and, and put a timetable to it as well. Was it, is this a story that came before or after your um, spiritual awakening, I, I, whatever you know, phrase uh-huh. you're comfortable with there. All right. We hope you're enjoying our show today as we discuss uh, personal responsibility. Uh, our first guest, Mark Goodkin, had uh, a philosophical approach to it. As you can hear, uh, Richard takes a more realistic, here I am, uh, you know, I've looked at my life, and maybe it's passing quicker than I want it to pass, and uh, is this all there is? And we're getting some really good perspective. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and take your calls. To Please stay tuned. You won't want to miss what's coming up. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. There's a hidden secret in the Northwest. Well, it's not really a secret but it's not very well known either. 
Eldon and Inventor discovered the neatest bookstore in Sandpoint, Idaho. The store is called Zero Point Crystal. And when you enter the premises, you face a six-foot-tall quartz crystal that gives off an unbelievable radiance. Books, music, gemstones, lapidary specialties, singing bowls from Tibet, essential oils, and so much more fill this special sanctuary. If you're in the area, be sure to check them out. If not, visit their website at www.zeropointcrystals.com. You won't be sorry you did. Hi, I'm Jen Reich, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. This poem is called Right Time, Right Place. And my heart moves towards the ethers, my soul moves towards the door. Yet my spirit sends me back, for there is something more. So I dance with indecision. I have it out with fear. I open up my third eye that I can truly hear. And the message that comes through me is one of joy and grace. And knowing in our trusting, we are always in right place. What is life without relationships? What would success mean if there were no one to share it with? Good relationships can make the worst situations better and the best situations fantastic. And we are not only talking about personal relationships, our significant other. No, we are talking about all relationships. Friends, family, colleagues, employers, teachers, students, healthcare professionals, service assistants in stores and restaurants, and on and on. When you have good relationships, most other problems just dissipate. And now we have an InterTalk collection designed especially for relationships. Learn how to end codependent patterns. Cultivate an inner sense of peace. Become a better listener. Learn to communicate effectively. Develop positive relationships wherever you go. Release the fear of rejection. Add a spark of charisma to your personality. And generate honesty in all of your relationships. Eldon Taylor's new Positive Relationships Collection consists of nine programs on eight CDs, and uses a variety of technologies. Use the patented and proven Intertalk subliminal programs in the background as you go about your day or while sleeping, and use the headphone programs once or twice a day to give you that immediate boost. What is life without relationships? Pretty empty. Bring meaning and joy to your life by cultivating great relationships wherever you go. The Positive Relationships Collection is a $250 value but you can get your copy right now for just $79. Just go to www.provocativeenlightenment.com and click on Special Offers. Your life will never be the same. If you're new to this show, you may enjoy our archives. You can find more than five years of archives on our site, provocativeenlightenment.com. During that time, we have interviewed Hollywood greats, politicians, psychics, CIA personnel, hard scientists, religious leaders, skeptics, mathematicians, philosophers, social psychologists, best-selling authors, channels, mediums, and more. We have charted the waters of health and wellness, parapsychology, psychic phenomena, UFOs, NDEs, physics, psychology, criminology, neuromarketing, brainwashing, and still more. If any of that sounds like your kind of radio, check out our archives again at ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. Be sure to subscribe to our free newsletter while you're there. 
Eldon's international best-selling book, Mind Programming, is a must-read if you wish to live awake in a world of sheeples. Film producer Jeff Warwick had this to say about Mind Programming. Dr. Eldon Taylor's new book is a must-read. If you've ever questioned your purpose in life or felt bound by a culture that's driven by mass media, you now have at your fingertips the knowledge and tools to break the chains of this cycle. Eldon goes in-depth to illustrate and expose how we've been programmed from birth by social constraints, and he methodically reveals the psychological techniques that advertisers, politicians, corporations, and the media use to control us. He then provides strategies and solutions to free your mind from these tactics and rise to a new level of consciousness. As you read this book, you'll feel the blinders being removed and will truly see the world in an entirely new light. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. You can join in the conversation by calling 877-230-3062. And for our international callers, you can join us by dialing your country code and 425-644-5620. You can also participate by entering the chat room at eldentaylor.com forward slash chat. You can email Eldon from anywhere on the world by sending an email to Eldon at eldentaylor.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Richard Rowland about his life and book, Unspoken Messages. We will take your phone calls in this half hour. So if you have questions of our guest, either give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room. Ravinder, Andrea, and Jana are there to put your questions forward. Okay, Richard, we just played some of Learn to Be Still. Uh you know, why is this important, this music important to you? Why did you give this as one of your songs of life? That particular song there is what I use to center myself. When when I'm having a bad day or when things aren't going just exactly the way I want them to, that song has a tendency to put things back in perspective for me and shows me the, the complete picture. I look at music so much differently now than than I did before. The, the words have so much more meaning than they did before, but that particular song is, is high on my list of, of what actually centers me on a bad day. 
Learn to be still. You know, I wasn't familiar with the song, but I, I really, I mean, I listened to it a couple of times before we queued up for the uh, radio show, and it, it, it has some pretty powerful words in it, a pretty powerful uh, message. It, during our noon break, we showed uh, the YouTube video of your song, Do You Know? Now, this was uh, written for your book. Tell us about that song and, and how you, you know, how it came about. I'm blessed to have so many wonderful, wonderful people in my life. And this gentleman that wrote, produced, and, and this song did it as a gift for the video press release for the book. And I've watched him as a young man growing up. I used to work with his father in law enforcement, and then we had a long period where we weren't in touch with each other. And he ended up boarding a horse with me. And he's uh, such a deeply spiritual person, but he's a very talented songwriter and musician at the same time. And he wanted to write a song for it after he read the book. He read the book before it was published. And uh, he has become one of my best cheerleaders. I mean, he was really taken by the book and moved and has told, I don't know, I couldn't even imagine how many people about it. And the song that he wrote, I... I have to admit that I, I got real emotional the first time I listened to it, and I'll get real emotional if I listen to it today because he did such a wonderful job with the words and the storytelling. Wonderful, wonderful story. Do you know? It's on uh, YouTube. If you weren't in our chat room and you missed the presentation, go look it up. Do you know? Um Richard, the book is basically divided into two parts, and during the first half, we've talked a little bit about both parts, but, you know, before we went to break, I suggested I was going to ask you about the most meaningful story, and I assume that's going to come from part one. Um, tell us what that meaningful story is. It, it's really difficult for me to choose when when I actually, you know, gave birth to my my life gave birth to all the stories, but the lead-off story, and they all said goodbye, is has been the most spiritual encounter I've ever witnessed firsthand, and I guess that's why it's the lead-off story, and that would have to be my favorite from the book. Share the story with our audience. It, uh, it took place in the summer. Uh, I believe 2009, I had a horse here that belonged to some people in uh, Massachusetts in the Northeast. We used to do a lot of foaling for people out of the Northeast. And I just fell in love with this horse when she got here. She was, her and I just uh, were two souls that were meant to me. And she was so good with me and, and so light. I always tell people that, and I know you know what I'm talking about when I say this, but she was so light to pressure that it was almost as if she was doing what I was asking her without me asking her. It's almost yeah. like she knew I was going to do something. And uh, she had a foal, and we used to keep them in the barn lot until they got accustomed to the high tensile fence that we run. We do one section of the barn lot with the high tensile, and we want to make sure the foals can... Respect that type of fence before we turn them out into a lot. So also in this barn lot is a round pen, and there was a gilding in the round pen. And uh, the mayor really didn't like her foal being around the gilding, and she let the foal drift off from her a little bit and 
and looked and, and saw the foal was over next to the round tin panel uh, chatting with the gilding. So there was a gentleman that boards with me that was here and saw all this and relayed it to me because I didn't get to witness this first part of it, but she took off running after this foal and got the foal ran also, but she got between the round pin panels of the foal as if she were protecting it from the other horse. And her hip hooked the fingers that go together to make a round pin panel. They're 15-foot panels that are put together in a round shape. Her hip hooked one of these fingers on the panel, and the finger went into her hip and broke the pelvis. And the gentleman that witnessed it called me on his cell phone, and, and I went over. And I couldn't envision, when he told me what had happened, how it could be that bad. I really couldn't envision it until I was walking across the barn lot, and I saw how she had bent one of the panels double, one of the metal panels was bent double. But she was standing in the barn lot looking towards the house waiting for me. I was, I was there the night her foal was born. And, uh, we had a little bit of difficulty, but nothing too major. But we just had that kind of relationship. And when I got over there, I realized how bad it was. I'd never seen anything occur like this before. And there were a lot of phone calls made back and forth between the owner and the vet. And, of course, the vet came out pretty quick and uh, we talked about all of our options and there just weren't a lot there was there was nothing that we were going to be able to do and and ultimately the decision was made that she would have to put down now by the time this decision was made it was dark i mean a new moon night dark nothing uh, you couldn't see we had a light from the barn but that was it and we were situated we're situated on 15 acres in uh, kind of about 40 miles south of Louisville. And at that particular point in time, we had 19 other horses here, including her foal. But they're spread out. We have different pastures and lots that are all around us. So uh, we were full. And like I said, the decision was made that she was going to be put down. And uh, the vet administered the, the first shot. And it was almost like a switch had been turned on. As soon as he put the needle in the vein to administer the first shot of the series that, that ultimately puts a horse to sleep, every horse on this property went nuts. They were nickering and running and rearing and kicking, and I'd never heard such a din. And like I said, it's like a switch turned on, and it started. They were calling out, and I'm just, I've got goosebumps because I, I really don't know what's going on here, but it, it got so much more spiritual because when she finally took her last breath, it was as if the switch got turned off, and we had dead silence. And I knew I had witnessed something that was just incredibly powerful and spiritual, and it was it was a message. And, of course, the, the story goes into much more detail than I just did. But I had never experienced anything like that before. And I haven't experienced anything quite like that since, but I know other people have because you're one of them. Yeah, and they, uh, those kinds of experiences teach, uh, teach us at a level that uh, 
makes it undeniable uh, for us when we, you know, when uh, for me, and I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll let you speak for yourself. For me, uh, my animals have been some of my best spiritual teachers, and and my animals, my dogs and my horses, both have uh, have given me cause to appreciate. Uh, spirituality at a deeper level than I think any of the books I've ever read. And they've certainly afforded evidence that there is something that goes on here that surpasses our current understanding, the the so-called paradigm that we share as, you know, the what the science as we understand the world. There is something else that goes on here that takes place. There's no way, for example those horses are going to be able to read the intent uh, some scientists would say of of the injection no way they're going to know the moment this that had to be just some kind of what uh, coincidence but you've lived these this is just one of your stories I've I had a very as you know similar circumstance with a mare that that uh, died uh, due to colic uh, and, and she died with her head in my lap and uh, and I saw 50 horses in the barn just do exactly what you described at the moment her eyes rolled back in her head so I know that this is true I know this is real and it had to be a great teacher to you oh my word it I, I, I'm sitting here at the table right now talking to you with goosebumps all over me because it it taught me so much, and at that particular point in time, I was aware of, of the diagnosis. I was aware that there was there was something going on with me that was wrong, and that just was almost like a slap. <laughs> You've got to see that this is so much bigger than you ever thought. It was so much bigger than you've ever been told. There's more to this, and you need to look at those things. And it, it goes on. There's there's ten stories in the front of the book, and nine of them are about instances like these, where before I would have written something like this off as coincidental. But I've become one of those people that's convinced that coincidence doesn't exist, that all these things happen for a reason. And, and animals are teachers, and animals are healers, because that particular instance that happened that I witnessed has taught me a lot, and that was that was part of what she did when when she was alive. When she was going through this, her eye stayed on me or her phone. It didn't pay any attention to the bed or anybody else. She looked between us two, and there was another story in in the front of the book about her foal's life afterwards that was magical too. Because I was going to ask you to follow up with that, so just pick up and share that story, please. The foal, you've raised foals and trained foals. Right. This is this is not an easy process because you know a, a horse, is, their gift is speed and 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 flight, and and that's what they want to do. They see you as a predator early on. So being able to break. Uh, a break or train a young horse to do things is really a long process to get them right. And that's what we did. That's that's what we did for a living. 
and I didn't have to do it with her. Nothing. Nothing. Everything was like she already knew how to do it. Um, it was just the most amazing horse that we had ever trained because we didn't have to train her. She knew how to lead. She knew how to haunt her. The first time she had her feet trimmed was in a barn lot, and she never acted up. And, and you know how horses do if they're not mm-hmm. haven't been taught that. But learning to pick up her feet and to give the pressure and to move. And the other thing about this is this doesn't usually happen with an orphan horse. Orphan foals generally don't turn out that well. They turn out as pushy, demanding, because they're not horses. They don't get a chance to be horses. They don't get taught by their mother how to be. And it's really difficult to raise an orphan horse to turn out good. And she has done it. She has a wonderful life now. I don't want to ruin the whole story by saying where she is, but she's no longer in this country. Um, when she went from here to Michigan, which she she belonged to another person, and this is a money business, and that other person sold her. But when she went to Michigan, they put a saddle on her up there. She'd never had a saddle on, and they rode her, and she never bucked. It was like it was like there was some transference of knowledge that went on between the foal and the mare the night the the, the mare died, and it was like she transferred that part to her. And it was just such an amazing experience to be involved in this horse's life. And I still try to follow her. She's, uh, like I said, she's in another country, and she has had uh, a fall of her own now. So the circle continues. You, you know, we, of course, you and I could share stories for forever. I'm thinking here, you know, the first half of, of this two-hour show was all about the head, and the second half seems to be all about the heart. Yeah. But, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if if anyone has ever had an animal that just somehow knew what they wanted without them ever teaching it, you have to ask, well, how is that possible? You know, we had Rupert Sheldrake on the show, and, and Sheldrake has done some research on how, you know, I shouldn't say how, but on animals that know when their owners are coming home and the data is so robust it's without a doubt they somehow know that the owner is on his way home he just got on a plane in in malaysia and the door goes to the front the dog goes to the front door and waits there 15 hours for the owner to arrive home Uh, repeated story after story what what do you think the message in that is to us richard I think the message is that animals are more involved. They have a sense that that we're unaware of. They're deeper in into the energy part of our existence than we are, and they understand a lot of things that we don't. And you can you can learn from them. And we're not just talking about horses here. We're talking about dogs and cats. And, you know the. There have been so many things that have happened in my life that, that revolve around animals that are, they just defy scientific explanation. I believe, and, and I will always believe, that they're a little bit more evolved than we are. You know, I read years ago uh, 
they're our companions, they are spirit companions, they're here to help us, guide us, teach us, but not necessarily what we think we want to learn, but but a sensitivity about life that is more important to us than what we tend to put our focus on. And I suppose my life would bear, at least I would interpret my life with animals as bearing witness to that. Uh, let's let's do this. Let's change the subject a little bit, because otherwise you and I will talk for a couple of more days about <laughs> animals. You you have a unique notion, and, and I want to understand it more, so tell me about your version of the bucket list. <laughs> My version of the bucket list is quite different than most people would think when they think about a bucket list. Most people want to make their bucket list, and whether it be 10 or 15 or 20 things, and mark them off, and as they've marked all of them off, they're ready to go. And I'm not particularly ready to go. And I've seen too many. I've seen too many times that that people have this goal. Here, somebody has has received a, a, a life challenging diagnosis, and and they know they're going to transition. They know they're going to die, but they have somebody in their life that's getting ready to have some milestone event, whether it's a graduation or a a promotion or a wedding. And this person wants to live to see that. And then when they see that, there are millions of stories where that's when they die. That's when they transition. And being one of those people that's always looking for maybe a unique way to look at things, I just decided I was going to have more or less a revolving bucket list because I didn't (laughs) ever want to run out of things I wanted to do. So... I make my bucket list, and I mark things off of it, but when I mark something off, I put something else on, and I get just as passionate about that as I do any of the other things that are on there. So I'm always, I've always got something else I want to do. I don't ever want to say, I want to get here and that's it. I, at least I don't want to right now. My mindset right now is to continue to experience this life and teach. But the per- the perpetual bucket list. I like that. You know, I'm I'm, I'm going to take that on. I heard. You know, listen. Years ago, a, a study had been done that uh, determined that the cells of the body would perfectly replicate themselves for a minimum of 144 years. Now, I don't know how they managed that study, but I sure took it to to heart. And there's no reason, you know, Richard, you and I can't have this conversation 50 years from now. I'll put, I'll create a perpetual bucket list just like yours, my friend. (laughs) Well, good. Okay. I just firmly believe it. And I've read some of those same studies that you have. All right. Let's, uh, you know, we've only got another minute and a half or so, and I want everybody to know where they can get your book, how they can learn more about you, I don't even know. Do you answer emails? Do you talk to people who are experiencing going through the same thing, same kind of thing that you've experienced? Tell us, tell us how someone could reach out to you, Richard. They can, they can reach out. We have a strong presence on Facebook. I, I started one for the stables a long time ago, but I have a personal page on Facebook under Richard D. Rowland. I have a Facebook page under Unspoken Messages for the book. I have of course we've got a website but the, the stables website we're setting up a, a website for the book itself so if you google my name or if you go to if you have facebook and, and you 
look for unspoken messages, you're going to find us. And I answer every inquiry I get. And if it comes through the publisher, which some of them have, I am personally involved in, in answering every comment. And I never let a comment go by that I don't say something about. So I'm more than happy to talk to people on an online presence there to about anything they may have a question about. The book can be purchased at several places, but uh, the publisher, of course, is Balboa Press, but it's also available at any retailer. Yes, you can find it online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It is a great book, and, and, and you will love reading the book. You don't have to be an animal lover to do that. I strongly recommend this book. And, Richard, as far as I'm concerned, my friend, you continue to protect and serve. And I greatly appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us today. I am honored to have been here today. It's been a dream come true. You take care. All right. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment, unfortunately. I want to thank our guests and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on the show, do please let me know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.